The Holy Gospel of the Lord according to Luke. Glory to you, Lord Christ. Now the sinners and tax collectors were drawing near to Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. And so he told them this parable. He said, there was a man who had two sons. The younger of the two said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that is coming to me. And so the father divided the property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had and went on a journey to a far country where he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he'd spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country and he began to be in need. So he hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into the fields to feed the pigs. And he longed to be fed with the pods the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. And when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread and here I perish with hunger. I will arise and go to my father. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. Let us pray. Father, we believe that you inspired your servant Luke to record this parable of Jesus and we believe that these words not only had power in the day that Luke wrote them, but these words of power today because they're inspired by your Holy Spirit. And so we pray, come Holy Spirit, open this word for us, perhaps as never before, that we would be changed more and more to be like Christ. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. I invite you to be seated. Why does Jesus welcome sinners and eat with them? That's the question that's behind this whole parable. Why does Jesus welcome sinners and eat with them? The presenting question behind this parable, this parable which is probably one of the most famous parables of Jesus, it's up there with the Good Samaritan, the parable of the prodigal son, has behind it this question that we read in verses 1 and 2. It presents the dilemma, the scandal, the reason for the parable. We'll be walking through this parable for the next three weeks together. So I encourage you to turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 15. Turn in your Bibles, your pew Bibles, or your phones to Luke 15. And before we get to verse 11, when our, where our parable begins, verse 1 and 2 gives us the background. See, we read that the tax collectors and sinners were drawing near to Jesus. And the scribes and the Pharisees grumbled, saying this man welcomes or receives sinners and eats with them. See, understanding the problem with eating with them is if we uncover the reality of what it meant to share a meal in the ancient Near East context. See, we, we, we miss this in our Western world because so often we do weird things with food in the West. Like we have these awful things called food courts in malls. 
where, you know, a bunch of strangers get together and everyone runs off to different places and gets, even one family, you know, multiple restaurants and they come back and they're eating at different times and there's no real sense of anyone knowing each other. There's no sense of sacredness to the meal. But in the ancient Near East and even in the Middle East and so many places today, if you share a meal with someone, it is an important moment that says, your family, your kindred, I am for you. We are together. We are truly a family. That's what a meal means. I saw this so clearly when I was in seminary. I was uh, studying late at night for a single semester with a student named John Dute, who had uh, come as a refugee from the Sudan. John had been an evangelist, an Anglican evangelist in the Sudan, threatened, had left and fled with his family through Egypt, had come to Canada, and now he's studying seminary. So John and I would gather together to study late into the evening, and I would help him with his English, and he would help me with my faith. And one night, we were studying. It was late. It was like 11 o'clock. And John said, now it is time for us to have a meal. And, and everything in my Western sentiment said, no, we don't do a meal at 11 p.m. at night. I'm thinking, my wife is wondering where I am, and it's, we've been here all night, and frankly, I've already had dinner. And, but something deep inside me said, Paul, don't misunderstand this cultural moment. Just say yes. And so I said reluctantly yes, and we sat down. And his wife, this poor Sudanese family, had laid a spread before us. And John and I ate this meal. And at the end, John stood up, looked me in the eye and said, now we are brothers forever. <laughs> I mean, thanks be to God that I didn't say when he invited me, you know, catch you next time but instead recognize that for him, this was a moment of being family, eating a meal together. And so it is the scandal of Jesus eating a meal with these sinners, the wrong people. And so in verse three, in response to the Pharisees and scribes grumbling, Luke says, so he told them a parable. Three parables follow. The lost sheep, the lost coin, and now the lost son, or as we'll see over three weeks, the lost sons. There are two sons in this story, and we will discover they're both equally lost. But for now, the question today, as we look at the first part of this story, and it was jarring to end there at verse 17. You're thinking, there's more to this parable. Well, you gotta keep coming back. But for now, this first section, the question, why does Jesus welcome sinners and eat with them? And the answer is this. When Jesus looks at a sinner, here's what he sees. He sees a lost child who wants to go home. When Jesus looks at a sinner, he looks past all of the brokenness. He sees it. He sees the corruption and the wickedness and the brokenness, but here's what he sees under it all, a lost child who desperately wants to go home. The reason Jesus welcomes sinners and eats with them is when he looks at a sinner, he sees a lost child who is, first of all, headstrong, headstrong, defiant, rebellious, determined to do it their own way. That's 
how they get lost headstrong. But not only when Jesus looks at a sinner does he see a lost child who's headstrong, he sees a lost child who is hell-bound. Not just bound towards hell, but actually experiencing hell on a daily basis, whether they'll acknowledge it or not. But not only as Jesus looks at a sinner does he see a lost child who is headstrong and hell-bound, but he sees a lost child who's homesick. Whether they know it or not, they are homesick for the father who is waiting for them. See, when Jesus looks at a sinner first, he sees a lost child who's headstrong. We see that headstrong, defiant behavior right away in the story. Verse 12, the man has two sons, and the younger of the two, verse 12 says, said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that is coming to me. Coming to me when? When you're dead, dad. Like, I want the money now. We can't underplay how important this statement is. Within an ancient Near Eastern context, what this son is saying to his father is, I just, don't just want a loan for the future. He's saying, dad, I really wish you were dead. The age and your, your health is getting in the way of me not living into the future that I have for myself. I know what's coming to me and your living is in the way. Dad, if you could just get out of the way so I could actualize myself. I could live the life I know that I can live. I could be affirmed in everything that I need to be affirmed in. See, Kenneth Bailey, who's an anthropologist, has studied communities that are virtually untouched in the last 2,000 years. Communities throughout the world that are sort of tribal, oral communities. And as he has unpacked these parables of Jesus, here's what he found. He says this. He says, for over 15 years, I have been asking people from all walks of life, from Morocco to India, from Turkey to the Sudan, about the implications of a son's asking for his inheritance while his father is still living. The answer's been almost emphatically the same. I ask this, has anyone ever made such a request in your village? Never. Could anyone ever make such a request in your village? Impossible. If anyone ever did, what would happen? His father would beat him, of course. Why? Because this request means that he wants his father to die. This story is a story we've heard again and again. We know this story. The story of a child resentful of living under the father's house and the father's rules. We know this story. This is not unfamiliar to us. A child who is resentful of the father and his house rules. It began right at the beginning with the sin of Adam and Eve. Right from the beginning, that sin, that original prideful sin, was a sin that began to assume in temptation the father's rules are actually holding us back from what we're truly called to be. The, the father's rule, the one rule, what did the father give? The father gave the entire garden for them. Eat everything, anything, it's all yours. There's one house rule from the father. You can't eat of this tree. And temptation comes 
And what do the man and woman begin to see this forbidden fruit as? Genesis 3, verse 6. Listen to this. So the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. So she took the fruit, ate it, and gave some to her husband. Hear that. The one rule in the house, don't eat of this tree, and the warning that with it, you will die if you eat it. The rebellious children in the garden could not abide by the father's house rule, but instead began to see clearly this rule is holding us back. There is something in that forbidden fruit that is good and delightful and will make us wise. And so they break that rule, desiring no longer to be squeezed and pinched and limited by this unbelievable father. I mean, all his thou shalts and thou shalt nots. I mean, I need to be free of those and self-actualize and fully live into my life every way possible. I need to throw off these bonds of rules and live my own life. And so have Adam and Eve's children ever since sighed and groaned over the rules of the father. Every time we run into a rule, every time we run into a good prohibition for us, a good direction, we rail against it. We sigh and we groan and we say, you're not letting me live my life. When I was in my second parish, eastern part of Canada, just above Maine, New England, beautiful small little town, single parish, single point parish, we were there about two years, and I started feeling squeezed. I felt underutilized. I felt like there's something bigger in my life coming. I, I, I really am not being utilized the way I need to be utilized. And I began to, on Sunday evenings, start searching the job boards because I needed to find that better fulfillment of myself. And I found the job. I was on the job board and I found this chaplaincy position at an Episcopal boarding school. And it was more money and it was more status and it was more prestige and it was closer to our parents. And it was just a picture perfect future that I knew I wanted. And so I applied and I had to go sit down with my supervising dean, the priest who gave supervision to me. And I sat down with him we're at a Subway restaurant and I sat down with him and I said, this is what I'm going to do. And he said to me, I don't think you should. He said, you've only been there a couple years. He said, I think you need to wait to see what develops over time. This is going to grow you and mature you. I think it's too soon. You know what I said in response? Well, I, I, I had the secret weapon. I spiritualized it. And I said, oh no. I know that God is just calling me to a new opportunity. Do you know what he said to me? He put down his sandwich. I remember he put down his Subway sandwich. And he said, Paul, I thought you were more mature than that. <laughs> I was 27 years of age and I was furious. And I went anyway, and I was going to prove him wrong. And I was defiant, and I was headstrong, and I knew better, and it turned out to be hell on earth. The worst season vocationally of my life. I thought it was going to be heaven, but it turned out to be hell. 
We all have this son in us, don't we? This defiance, this demanding our freedom, railing at limits, headstrong. As C.S. Lewis says, fallen man is not simply an imperfect creature that needs improvement. He's a rebel who needs to lay down his arms. Jesus looks at a sinner and he sees a lost child who's headstrong. But he also sees a lost child who's hell-bound. See, in that headstrong decision to throw off the shackles of the father, to throw off any limitations, the younger son finds himself in his own personal hell. Verse 13, he liquidates everything, which, by the way, in preparation for next week, just a note, the whole community is part of that liquidation effort. Remember, we're talking about an agrarian community for the most part. So when he gets half of the property and then it says in verse 13 that he gathers all he has and goes to a far country, that means he has to sell the land. He has to sell the cows. He has to liquidate his property. How does he do that? But with the local community, villagers all around. Can you imagine the son going door to door to every villager and surrounding farmer and saying, I'm selling the land. And, and the villager saying, your father has died? Oh, no, uh, I asked for the inheritance now. You did what? Now, don't get me wrong, son. I'll buy your cows. I'll, I want your land. But as the son goes from door to door, liquidating his inheritance, the horror and resentment and disgust of that community grows. What son could do this? So he takes it all, he liquidates it, verse 13 says, and he goes off and he spends it recklessly. That's the word we get prodigal from. We call it the prodigal son. It's verse 13, reckless. It means lavish. It means undisciplined. It means prodigal. It, it, it means ridiculous in spending. Here's what's interesting when we get to week three is we're gonna realize that maybe in fact, the true prodigal in the story isn't actually the younger son. But when it comes to lavishly spending what you have in a gigantic and unthinkable way, perhaps it's in fact the father who is lavish in his affection and what he has. But for now, the son is a prodigal and he's recklessly spending. It's gone. A famine hits. He has to sell himself, verse 14, 15, and 16, into indentured service. And what does the countryman do? He sends this Jewish boy into the fields to feed the pigs. You need to understand how horrible this example is. Jesus is doing this on purpose. This is a Jewish son and he's feeding the pigs. The pigs... The pigs are unclean. We're going to be studying Leviticus in a few weeks from now on Wednesday nights. You're going to understand all the uncleannesses that the Old Testament lays out. One of those is pigs. The pigs are unclean. Hear this. The pig unclean is getting fed and the Jewish son is starving. There is no greater picture of a personal hell described in the New Testament, I believe, than a Jewish son feeding a pig that which he would rather consume himself. He is perishing and the pig lives. 
It's hell. He, he got everything that he thought he wanted. And it turned out to be hell. A personal hell. And let's just be clear. The pigsty we may find ourselves in as lost sons and daughters need not look like his pigsty. We can experience personal hell living in a mansion. Everything can look put together on the outside and we know what it is to feel absolutely broken on the inside. As Freddie Mercury, one of the great rock legends, once said, you can have everything in the world and be the loneliest man on earth. Or as Mark chapter 8, verse 36 says, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world but lose his soul? <laughs> Do you hear the irony in it? The irony that in seeking freedom from his father, he ended up in bondage. In seeking freedom, he ended up in bondage to his own desires and in bondage to himself. You think of the Bob Dylan song, you gotta serve, you're gonna serve somebody. It might be the devil and it might be the Lord, but you're gonna serve somebody. I think in a much more poetic and powerful way, Helmut Thielicke, who's a German theologian and philosopher, I think wrote a phrase about this moment that I think is the best ever written. He says this. He says, the fact is that we are always subject to a master. We as human beings are always subject to a master, either to God, and then we're the, in the Father's house possessing the freedom of the children of God, sons, not servants, with constant access to the Father, or we are subject to our urges and therefore subject to ourselves, subject to our dependence on men, our fears, our worries, our mammon. In other words, the question we all face is whether we want to be the child of one master or the slave of the other. This is why Jesus looks on the crowds and has compassion. In Matthew chapter 9, verse 36, it says that he looks on the crowd and had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. When Jesus looks at a sinner, he sees a lost child who is headstrong, defiant, and has ended up in hell. Hell bound bound to themselves, bound to their urges, to their desires. But that's not all he sees. This first part of the parable shows us that when Jesus looks at a sinner, not only does he see a lost child who's headstrong and hell-bound, but he sees a lost child who's homesick. Verse 17 says, when he came to himself, when he came to himself, when he came to his senses, when he had that moment of turning, what was it? He said, 
This was the moment of turning. This was the moment of coming to his senses, coming to himself. How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, and yet I here perish from hunger? I will arise and go to my father. See, the moment of coming to himself is his remembrance of the father. It's his remembering of his home that causes him to come to himself and begin that journey home. This is how lost children come to themselves. They experience homesickness. Now you may say that, that works for people who have known God in the church. You know, and they're sort of formerly church and they've run away from God and it's that sense they know God the Father and they're, they're homesick to come home. But it even applies to the never churched. See, whether you've ever been in church and know God as Father and then run away or whether you've never known God as Father, as a human being, we have a homesickness written into the very core of who we are. Do you know why? Because every human being has a faint memory of Eden. It's written into our very creation. Fallen as we are, we have an echo, a faint memory of Eden written into the very core of who we are. We may not know how to articulate it. We may not understand it. But in our darkest moments, we experience all of us as human beings that sense that there is something better. There is a home from which I have been lost and a home that I long to return to. And maybe there might even be a father there to welcome me. certainly clarifies our role in evangelism, doesn't it? Suddenly evangelism, if this is truly how people who are lost come to themselves, evangelism becomes less about putting a billboard on the side of the highway that says, repent or burn. But instead is a person-to-person invitation. You have a home. Would you come home? See, the Pharisees were all into repent and burn. Right? That's, that's what they were railing at with Jesus, inviting these sinners to eat with him because they loved the repent and burn. Jesus was all about repentance, but it was a different kind of motivation for repentance. See, for the Pharisees, they were concerned that Israel had to keep the law perfectly, all 613 laws of Moses. You thought 10 was bad. 613 laws extrapolated from the law of Moses. If every Israelite male, sorry ladies, that's what they believed, if every Israelite male could hold the law just perfectly one day, the kingdom of God would come. That's what the Pharisees believed. And so they ran around with repent and burn to anyone who was a sinner. Jesus instead shows up saying, repent, not because you're going to burn, but repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Do you hear the invitation there? Repent because you have a home to go back to. Turn around and come home. It's it's not disgust with ourselves that makes us come to ourselves. I mean, if that were the case, we'd all, the whole world, would be just totally well-ordered. Right? We're all disgusted with our behavior at times. We're all disgusted with ourselves at times. And if, if that was all that was required, looking at my sin and my brokenness and disgusted by it, and then oh, that, that I come to myself and I change my life. If that was it, the world would be fine. 
But that's not how it works and Jesus knows it. Jesus knows that it's not disgust at ourselves that causes us to come to, our, to ourselves. It is a remembrance of our home. And as we compare that echo and memory and whisper of home to our own personal hell, it's then truly that we will be disgusted with our hell. And then we'll come to ourselves and turn. Ernest Hemingway, in his short story, The Capital of the World, tells the story of an estranged father and son. And the father takes out a newspaper ad in the Madrid newspaper. And the newspaper ad reads like this, Paco, his son's name, Paco. Meet me at Hotel Montana at noon Tuesday all is forgiven, Papa. And when the father arrives at Hotel Montana at noon on Tuesday, Hemingway tells us that it turns out that Paco is a very common name in Madrid. And there are 800 young men waiting for their father. We have a world full of lost children who truly want to go home. Next week, we're going to see the great cost to the father to bring lost sons and daughters home. But for now, hear the gospel. Why does Jesus welcome sinners and eat with them? Because when he looks at a sinner, Jesus sees a lost child. Headstrong, defiant, broken, hellbound, suffering in a misery of their own making, but homesick, longing to be embraced and welcomed by their father. Outside the church, inside the church, we are all sinners. Look back on this past week. How have I been headstrong, defiant and determined to do it my own way? How have I, in those moments, actually begin to taste hell again because of that headstrong sin? And how much has that homesickness grown up in me? We're here today, and we invite others into the church every week because the world, us all, are homesick. And as we come into the church and we find today, we find that Jesus still eats with sinners. That's the gospel. That's what changes 
this world. You have a home. Come home. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.